Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and I'm flying solo today. So we are speaking today with Josh Riedel. Josh was the first employee at Instagram, which obviously we're going to have to ask you about that, Josh, where he worked for several years before earning his MFA from the University of Arizona. His short stories have appeared in One Story, Passages North, and Sycamore Review. Please report your bug here is his first novel, and he lives in San Francisco, California. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Josh. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) So Please Report Your Bug Here is about a startup in Silicon Valley that gets bought out by the corporation. And so I'm guessing that there are aspects of it that are probably a little autobiographical for you. Is that true? That's true, yeah. <laughs> there. <laughs> you know, I actually wrote the opening pages of this book in, you know, 2017, a few years after leaving my job in the tech industry. And so the main character, Ethan's, like, bike ride to work is pretty much exactly the bike ride that I took uh. from my neighborhood, my apartment in San Francisco, down to Soma, where all the startups were then this is in 2010 san francisco um so yeah there are definitely parts of the book that are autobiographical a lot of the just what it's like to work at these intense startups really early on um just the intensity of work the hours that you put in the constant flow of red bull um (laughs) really bad like well not bad nature valley granola bars that i just like subsisted on for you know years uh, a lot of those details are definitely what it was like and it, yeah you know red bull is come from made in germany i think or it was invented oh, in well. germany and I, and i went on a tour in germany one time and we went past the red bull factory and it's like out in the middle of the bavarian woods it's actually very wow. cool <laughs> i had no idea <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anyway, so so when you were, you know, Ethan, your character has a degree in art or art history or, or something like that, and he really isn't a tech guy, but he gets drawn into this tech world. Was that, are you like that too? I'm definitely like that. <laughs> I was an English major at a liberal arts college in Portland, Oregon. Um, and right after I graduated, this is in 2007, I moved down to Silicon Valley and got a job at Facebook as a customer support representative. Okay. <laughs> so, so you I were was, in the corporation then. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then, you know, like fa- back then, Facebook was only open to college students and they oh, just started right. opening to high school students. So, right. Facebook back then was kind of like how we think of maybe like TikTok today. You know, it's like the young it people was kids, are on it. Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I remember because I first learned about it from my daughter who was in college, and mm-hmm. she graduated in two thousand and three, I think. So it was mm-hmm. right in the very early days. Right. Yeah. But, you know, like a lot of us, I think, like maybe your daughter and like me, like people around my age, like we're the generation that grew up like the internet came around when we were kids yeah yeah and so i remember what it was like to not have smartphones around you know (laughs) 
uh, and not constantly check email. Now, tell me the truth, though. Did you have a dial-up modem? I did, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I still remember the sounds. Yes. Like, that was what the Internet was for me. And, you know, even though I wasn't a non-technical, even though I wasn't a, an engineer, you know, like, I really felt this strong connection to the Internet because I grew up on AOL and LiveJournal and yep, all of Yep, yep. You know, we could, we could trade, we could trade, uh, early tech stories. I actually, my first real computer was an Osborne. That I'm sure predates you, <laughs> but you may have heard stories about it at some point along the way. And it, it was, <laughs> is that a train in the background? It is a car alarm. Oh. I, am, I, li- I live in San Francisco, but I'm actually in New York right now. Okay. And okay. Yeah, sorry about that. No worries, no worries. So, yeah, so the Osborne was the suitcase computer. So the whole thing oh, right, fit right. into this this big this big thing that um, the front came down and the back of it was the all the innards and stuff. And there was a five inch screen in this <laughs> part, and there were two ninety eight kilobyte floppy drives. Wow. Yeah, wow. And, and I believe the RAM was 64 kilobytes, and that was the coolest thing ever. Top of the line, yeah. <laughs> Top of the line, yeah. It cost, That's really cool. It cost $2,000, which was a lot of money back then, but mm-hmm. it came with software. It came with a spreadsheet, um, not Excel, not Lotus, not this account it was one even before that and it came with um also a very old version of i can't remember what the word processing software was but it was the like really early days yeah, yeah. i remember floppy disks you know, <laughs> and playing oregon trail on the like mm. old Macs when i was in elementary school yeah yeah so now were the, the floppy disks really floppy they were really floppy. They were. They yeah, were, yeah. Because yeah. then, they, then, then there we, were the hard ones. The hard ones, that. yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And then CDs, and now everything's downloadable, streaming, internet. It's all changed so There's fast. so much storage, and yeah, yeah, just everything just fits in our pockets now. Yeah. I, oh, I know. My phone is like probably 10,000 times as powerful as that original Osborne. Yeah. yeah. That's it. I mean, that, that is one reason why I wanted to set the book in 2010 San Francisco, because that for, I was living there and working at startups and it was really the point where everything started shifting to the phone. Mm, like yeah. the iPhone came out in 2007, but like I worked in tech and didn't even have an iPhone or a smartphone until 2009 and then all of these companies started building apps, and finally there were some good social networking apps on your phone in 2010. <laughs> well, that's the other thing, you know, the whole, um, like the the app thing. It used to be, in the early days, you had people were writing software for to do very small, specific things. And then it was, okay, let's write software that does practically everything. So Excel would be an example that you can do so many different things on there. Mm-hmm. And and then suddenly it suddenly went back to, okay, let's write software that does very specific things again, you know, these different apps. And that was a, actually a little bit of a challenge for me to make that switch, the idea that I need a different app for everything I wanted to do. Right. Yeah. Right. 
And I, I mean, it's still challenging <laughs> for me today. Like, <laughs> I look at my phone, like, why do I have all of these apps on? Do I use? Oh, I know. I, I know. <laughs> I know. Well, and my my mother, with who we were talking about, you know, she's going to be eighty eight this year, and I had gotten her a cell phone quite a long time ago, but it wasn't very smart. You know, first the flip phone, and then there was one that could take pictures and things, but. A few years ago, um, my brother decided she needed an iPhone so that um, she could get pictures of her great-grandchildren really mm -hmm. easily. So, mm -hmm. so we got her an iPhone. She gets very mixed up because she'll say, well, I got this message from somebody, and now I can't find it. And I said, okay, so which app did you get it on? Well, I don't know. It's on my phone. And it's like, <laughs> and so, well, was it Facebook or was it Instagram or was it? your messaging app or was it WhatsApp? You know, and she can't, she doesn't really understand I mean, that they don't you cross. Know, I relate to that. <laughs> I relate to that because I actually, with some people like, okay, with my parents, for example, I really like to just call them. Like we FaceTime mm -hmm. every yeah. other weekend or so. And yeah. it's just easier for me to keep track of than having messages in like text message or Instagram. Oh, and, no kidding. No kidding. So for work, some too, for, it's like, did I get that on my Teams chat? Did I get that right. in Skype? Did I get mm -hmm. that? Yeah, yeah. It's funny because technology makes it easier for us to communicate in some ways. Yeah. But then in other ways, like, well, I missed that message because <laughs> I use six different messaging. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> it's really interesting in a way that this book – Please report your bug here. It's about a technology that it's okay. So it's science fiction, but maybe it's not so unrealistic because all the things that we do now seemed like science fiction 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So do you think that the, the uh, program that you write about in here is actually something that will someday happen? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, never say never, you know. <laughs> um, but I mean, so in the book, really, Ethan's working for a dating app startup, and it's a pretty normal dating app, except for the fact that there's a lot of parts about the app that um, require a lot, like a lot of friction from the user. So, like, the inventor of the app really thinks it's best for the people to answer a bunch of questions about themselves before they're matched up with, you know, their soulmate. So it's not really like the type of app that venture capitalists might be that excited about in our real world, because it's not that easy to use. Um, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a version of a dating app. So that, that I can see is realistic, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. what happens is that Ethan finds a bug in the app that transports him to other worlds. Right. And that part, <laughs> that part, who knows? <laughs> and then the corporate. Now, did you have a specific corporation in mind when you when you're writing about the corporation? Because there's a couple that it could be or a few that it could be. Yeah, or is I mean, it a kind I, of an amalgamation? <laughs> yeah, there, it's kind of a combination of all of it. Like, you know, I have a lot of friends and I worked at these big tech company campuses south of San Francisco and they all kind of have a similar kind of like aesthetic to them, you know, multiple buildings and a lot of colors and fun, you know, bicycles and arcade <laughs> games and things like that. So it's kind of like 
my spin on that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I thought you handled it well that in a way, you know, in some sense, the corporation is like the enemy, but in some ways it's not. You know, you, it, mm-hmm. you have a fairly balanced, I think, nuanced view of why someone would choose to go to work there. Now, is there kind of a, a divide in Silicon Valley between people who work for one of the big tech companies and the startup? You know, it's like the startups all, all in some sense, want to be bought by the big companies, mm-hmm. but they also kind of resent them. Mm-hmm. Is that an accurate you know, that was my, again, like this novel takes place in like a parallel universe, 2010 San yeah. Francisco. And so my experience working there in the early 2010s was that part of, you know, the success of, especially a venture capitalist funded startup, one path to success is to be acquired by one of the big companies like right. a Facebook, Google, Apple. Um and that did seem like in the air then, mm-hmm. you know, it's like mm-hmm. we're either going to raise more money or this place is going to offer to buy us. I think um, personally, I felt like a lot of tension there because I think there's for these small startups, like a lot of potential and you feel like the sky is the limit. And so even though it is a measure of success that you get acquired by a big corporation, it kind of feels like it's over after that. Like, oh. You know, like you can keep growing and now we have to do the business stuff, but it feels like, you know, it's, you have a ceiling. Mm. So I think in that respect, I felt like um, there was a little bit of tension there because you want to be the next big one, you know. Right, right. Not just a little part, just not a little cog in in that big wheel. Yeah. Right. But I appreciate what you said about the portrayal of the corporation in the book because, it isn't just some like big bad corporation. <laughs> yeah. Like there's many reasons why like the people who work there decide to work there. You know, like there's um it's a tough place to get a job and a lot of your peers are very good at what they do and so you can learn a lot from them. Um great benefits, you know, they have free food there. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And also it's looks pretty good on your resume. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I know that from just from personal experience, I worked at Facebook right after college and then I didn't stay for very long. I stayed for a few months because I actually wanted to find a smaller place to work, like a smaller mm. startup. And I could use the fact that I worked at Facebook as a way to get, you know, my foot into the door of these other companies. Absolutely. So mm-hmm. how did you, was Instagram your next job or was there some others in between it was kind of a long uh (laughs) path to that um a very liberal arts english major of me i worked at (laughs) facebook and then i went abroad and taught english in vietnam and then i came back to san francisco and got a job at this tiny travel startup that no longer exists uh, okay. because it was acquired by Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I worked there for nine months. It's like, wait, everyone's going to Facebook. Oh. <laughs> um, and so I took a little bit of a break, like a couple months break. And my friend who I'd worked with at this travel startup was beta testing, you know, among a group of 50 or a hundred friends, this new app that he designed um, that would later become Instagram. 
Okay, so, so you were friends with the founder. Definitely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> As Ethan is in Please Report Your Bug Here. Mm -hmm. And I found – tell me why you chose not to give the founder a name other than the founder. Yeah, I mean – my thinking of that originally was just that every time we read about startups or like successful startups or tech companies, it's always about the founder. Like when you say Facebook, you think Mark Zuckerberg or Meta now. And I wanted to write a story that was more from the perspective of a tech worker, like someone who joined in on one of these companies. Mm -hmm. um, so not naming the founder, I felt like kind of, you know, I I hope he's, you know, a complicated enough character, but it, I think not having a name kind of makes sure he's not center stage. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Very powerful personalities. You know? Big egos. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so the founder is, is Ethan's friend, but he kind of, when when the corporation buys them out, he's not looking out for Ethan's best interests at all. Mm -hmm. Is that something that came from your life or did you have a better experience than that? You know, I had a better experience than that. I think like congratulations. Ask, <laughs> thank you. Um, well, I mean, I think when it comes to like the actual business, it's not, like I think that's one point I wanted to make is that, um, you know, these are you join these small companies and it's a lot more than work. Like it's your life because you're spending so much time doing it. Yeah. But you know, when push comes to shove and a business decision needs to be made, you're a business, you know, not a family or a group of friends. You're yeah. a business. And yeah. that makes a lot of sense, but it also, you know, I mean, even in my personal experience, you know, it, it's tough to deal with when you think you have something that's like a little, you know, like a, uh, like something that resembles a family, but then at the end of the day, you have to remember that this is a business. Absolutely. I, I, I know exactly where you're coming from because I'm an entrepreneur and the business that I co-founded in, well, the original version was 1996 is now fairly large. We're manufacturing, mm -hmm. um, manufacturing and design firm of mostly home and car fragrance products you probably have some in your home but um wow. yeah and but we've we've actually moved away from like referring as we've grown because we're up to over 100 employees in the u.s and and worldwide with our partner factories in china and stuff you know maybe a thousand i don't know how many there are wow. over there but but um it's it's like we we really try and treat people well, and I think that we do a good job of it. But we've moved away from the the family talking about it as the family because honestly, it's not, and you can't. You're just going to disappoint people if mm -hmm. they if they expect you. I mean, I've had to fire people. You don't fire right, family right. members, you know. <laughs> right, I've had to do that too. It's yeah. Not no. no. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's a good point. It's good. I think thinking about the language that companies use to refer to employees is important. Um, I think, but also like you know, Ethan's coming right out of college. He's no longer an art history major. You know, like he's searching for a new identity, and so I think he's also bringing a lot of expectations into this work that. Mm -hmm. 
no one promised him. Ah, yeah. You know what I yeah, mean? Like, there's yeah. a way of seeing things, I think, where you think, like, okay, like, I'm going to ride this wave. I'm going to get, I'm going to be part of this dating app, and this is going to be who I am. Mm. And he's recently broken up with his girlfriend. Like, he's just looking for something to cling to. And so I think that happens too, you know, especially um, when we're like early in our careers or, you know, trying to like search for some sense of identity. I think that can happen through work. And Mm, yes, um, of course. And that can be a good thing, you know, it could be (laughs) in a way like losing yourself to work. It could be a fun challenge to try to find out who you are (laughs) through that, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And I got to tell you as a, as a, you know, manager, owner, so forth. I always, I, I get a little hurt when people leave the company. It's mm-hmm. like, what, I did everything I could to make this the best possible place to work and you're going somewhere else? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, and our guest today is Josh Riedel, author of Please Report Your Bug Here. Josh, why don't you read a little bit from the book for us so we get can get an idea of, of what this book is like? Sure, I'd love to. I'll just read from about 20 pages in, okay. and this is when the main character, Ethan, is using the dating app to try to answer enough questions so that he can finally see his top match or soulmate. <laughs> <laughs> I was a prolific date date user, though only for testing purposes. I wasn't looking for a partner so soon after my breakup with Isabel. Work kept me way too busy. Still, I needed to find out, for the sake of this mission statement, what it was like to finally see my top match. And to do that, I had to answer more of the app's questions. The tell us about yourself questions were written by some new age psychologist in West Marin, a friend of a friend, the founder said, and seemed so innocent and lightweight that the typical user answered approximately 600 in their first week. This was part of the secret to our success, the ability to induce a flow state in the user on sign up. The algorithm started out with easy questions, your favorite foods, hobbies, animals, and gradually began to pepper in questions on more sensitive topics, your fears, fantasies, medical history. The user, not wanting to break momentum, would answer those questions without thinking. Only after you completed a thousand questions would we show you a set of matches. We needed to keep our churn rate low so match results were throttled. Instead of showing your top match right away, we'd show you profiles with an 80% compatibility rate. Only after you dated all matches in that bracket would we show you the next percentile up. At that point, we also granted you the ability to share one new photo to your profile daily, so long as you continue to answer the tell us about yourself questions. Users were as obsessive about curating photos as they were about answering questions. The photos allowed them to express themselves in ways words couldn't. Users paired with their 90th percentile matches were a minority in the first couple months of the app's existence. Considered our power users, they answered on average over 4,000 questions and dated between 13 and 15 lower percentile matches 
before finding true love in the 91 to 93% range. In other words, they never met their top match, though of course they never knew that. Thanks to my admin privileges, I didn't have to date my lower percentile matches before viewing my top match, but I couldn't skip the questions. I had answered 9,873, and they only needed to answer 127 more before I could see my top match. I set to work. I always use the app at home on my own time in my own space, but I needed to complete this task now. Even if the content review queue became impossibly backed up, even if emails went unanswered, I put on my headphones and blocked everything else out. Hours pass and I entered into a trance state, small hits of serotonin keeping me alert as I tackled the questions. It was slightly addictive to reveal to the app and to myself what it was that made me, me. Especially this far in the process, when the basic questions were dropped for more open-ended questions like, if you could be invisible or have the power of flight, which would you choose? I would fly, I answered, because even if someone spotted me in hiding, I could fly away. Also, as a kid, my dad always asked me if I'd ever had a flying dream, and I never did, still never have. And how great would it be if I could tell him that even though I've never had a flying dream, I could fly in real life. Then again, I, character limit exceeded. <laughs> Next question. If your soul or essence is a basketball, what color is the ball? Orange? I don't get the question. What if I don't believe in any kind of soul or essence? What if I believe what science says, that what we are and what we see are character limit exceeded? What is the last living organism you saw? The engineer who just walked past me to use the bathroom. Wait, no, the plant in the corner of the office, which now that I think about it, I'm not even sure is real. Who waters it? No sunlight comes in. I have to check. Okay, <laughs> confirmed it is real. How could that be? So I guess the last living organism character limit exceeded. We knew answering yes or no questions in a single tap was more efficient than these free-form responses, but it was about quality, not speed. The investors who worried about user retention were the only reason we imposed character limits in the response field. That was the founder's compromise for not implementing a slew of other suggestions the investors pushed, such as swiping left or right on profile photos to indicate whether you find another user attractive. That's not to say we didn't let you browse photos. It's just that we made you earn your time. After a few minutes of browsing, the tell us about yourself questions took over the screen. Answering a certain number allowed you to browse again. Date date defied all rules about how to make an engaging app. So much friction, one early reviewer in TechCrunch stated. And yet our user base continued to grow and hardly anyone left. The founder compared this friction to opening a good bottle of whiskey. The slow process of removing the wax seal made you more desirous of what was inside. No need to rush. We were crafting the perfect experience of love. Thank you, Josh. That was Josh Riedel reading from Please Report Your Bug Here. Did you always want to be a writer? I did. I, um, it's, 
always nice answering that question because a lot of people, I think, read my bio and are like, oh, this tech guy who worked in Silicon Valley wrote a novel. And it's actually been a really long process. Um, you know, I was a kid writing and I wrote, I remember writing this book about a dragon in second grade or something, you know, and I won an award and got to go read it to the older kids. And, but then really like in high school and college, you know, I read a lot and wrote all different things. And in college, I took my first fiction workshops and, uh, started writing, like completing short stories. And so from then on, I'd been writing whenever I had the chance. So so tech was really what you did for a living, but yeah, writing yeah. is what you did for love. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, is, is sci-fi like your favorite genre to read? You know, I wouldn't say that. Um, I A lot of my writing, like before I worked in tech, was realist with some kind of like magical realist elements. But then I worked, I spent my twenties living and working in San Francisco and was around all these people who are basically trying to invent the future. And they're asking like, what is this? What is this? And, you know, I was the yeah. non-technical person there, but I had writing, I had my fiction. And so <laughs> I'd go home, like, I'm going to invent an app in my story. Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> yeah, so I think really like that that time that I spent um working after college really influenced my fiction and made it more speculative and like you know, sci-fi and that there's invented technology. Right, right. Uh, yeah, this isn't this isn't what I would call like I mean there's different g- genres of sci-fi. This isn't mm-hmm. I don't remember the names of them, but there's one that's really science oriented and, and right. that's not what this is. This right. is really I, more relation. It's a, it's a really a story about relationships. Right. And that's, you know, like that's my background in technology is um, how do we use technology like apps or social networks to bring people together? Mm-hmm. You know, that was kind of my focus and, I'm really interested in exploring that in my fiction as well, you know? So like having a dating app in my novel is a way for me to experiment with inventing my own app, but also finding a really straightforward way to say like, Hey, how can we bring two people together in real life? You know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is interesting because, Normally, as I'm talking to somebody, I'm making notes of, of where I might pull quotes out. And I got so engaged in talking to you, I forgot to make to, to note down where those things were. I'll take that as a good sign. I think it is a good sign. Yeah. So so if you look if you see me looking away, that's that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm taking notes. But, um, so Ethan is a content moderator. Do you want to explain mm-hmm. what that is? Sure. So part of Ethan's job as the non-technical one at the dating startup is that he has to go through flagged photos. And flagged photos are photos that anyone using the app has reported as violating the app's terms of use. So they could be you know, like nude photos or harassment, anything like that, that we don't want to see on our dating app. 
Right. And so he see, but Ethan sees them and there's basically a dashboard for him where he logs in and clears them out, makes sure they're actually violations. Sometimes they're okay photos and he lets them go back into the app, but he has to review them to make sure they're actually violations. And so he spends a lot of his, you know, every few hours, he's got to pull these photos up and look at them. And some of them are violent and ugly and, and uh, which is like, why do people do that? But that's a whole nother story, I guess. Right. Yeah. And is this a job you ever had? Yes. I, (laughs) you know, and this is, I mean, working at apps, you know, working at startups when they're really early on, like you it basically feel like you have 20 jobs in one, you know? Of course. Um, yeah. And yeah, this is part of what I've done at a couple of different companies. Um, and it, in, I think when we talk, if you like look up research on this now or what's happening nowadays with this a lot of the bigger companies contract out this work to contract workers in um you know other countries Mm -hmm. and there's a lot i think there's a lot um of just like research and things going on right now to try to figure out like how do we do this at scale while also keeping people healthy like mentally healthy. yeah i think i've i must have read an article or maybe it was a tv show or where someone had this job and it just really I think it was a movie. I think there was a movie where mm. some um, the character had this job and and it you know was very disturbing. It was very disturbing to them yeah. mentally. Yeah. But I feel like shouldn't there be AI that could do this by now? And there is. There is now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think it does everything perfectly, you know. Yeah. So I think people uh... are still involved. But there is, and that's. I mean, that's you know that's a an example of using technology for good. Like that's great that we have that. So AI is like suddenly a big part of the conversation with uh, this chat GPT. So Mm -hmm. what, what do you, what's your take on that? I think it's fascinating. (laughs) Um, It was funny though. I was in a bookstore the other night and someone asked me about it. And my, I, what I think about AI and these programs that can kind of help you write something is that, um, my friend, uh, Amit, who started this AI writing company called PseudoWrite, he describes chat GPT or AI as sort of like a Photoshop for writers. Photoshop so, for writers. Okay. So it's, it's like you can collaborate with it. You can use it as like complimentary to your own writing. To say, but can like, it oh, also just write the whole thing. You can also, you can say, write a science fiction, like a noir science fiction story about a bug in a dating app. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and it will give you something. (laughs) Um, But I, I, I like, um, I like this idea of it as like another tool that we can use to bring into our writing. Yeah. Um, You know, I do that with like, say visual art, you know, like I like to look at photos and think like, oh, what's going on in this scene? And maybe I can write a fictional scene based on that photo. And, you know, I I think in a way you could, you could look at AI this way. 
Yeah, yeah. It could also, it's very powerful. It could also write novels. And I've seen uh, websites talk about how they might use it to report on, you know, the things they report on every year. Like, what are the best winter gloves? Mm, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But somebody still has to probably edit it. And there has, yeah. to, I, I would think that you wouldn't just have it go straight from the AI to print. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would, I would think so. I'm sure there'll be examples where you can tell that's not the case. But yeah, I, I had a, com- a conversation recently with a friend who's a college professor um, in uh, religion, and she's actually retirement age. And she said, "I'm glad I'm retiring. I don't want to have to." figure out how do I deal with this in the college classroom. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know I've, I've been following that because I have a lot of friends who are teaching and I think I read a statement that I think Washington University in St. Louis put out that was something to the effect of embracing the technology in the classroom. You yeah. know, I think if we run away from it and like pretend it doesn't exist and you know, put this onus on teachers to try to identify what is and isn't written by AI. I just think that's a, a dead end. Um, yeah. Like trying to figure out a way to embrace <laughs> but But how do you do that? I don't, but you know, there was a time when the <laughs> idea of having laptops in the classroom was anathema. So I know, I you think know. I'm, I'm, I'm on that divide too, where I, you know, I taught at University of Arizona when I was in graduate school and my policy was, you know, no phones or laptops in the classroom. Ah. And this was in 2016, 2017. And I don't know if I do that now. I think that people like, especially like, you know, like Gen Z, like people who are in college now are so used to having these tools around and they are complementary to their learning. Whereas yeah. I think about them as a distraction. <laughs> <laughs> the, I mean, it, they have them in elementary school classrooms now, especially with COVID when all, the kids all had to go home and work remotely. Mm-hmm. And that was, so it's a big deal to get tablets into the hands of some of these kids that didn't have access. And, and, mm-hmm. um, and so now they're quite, they're quite used to it. I don't have kids yet, but I watched my, my three-year-old nephew walk up to a TV at a vacation rental we were at and start swiping it. Oh, it just comes so naturally to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You left tech at some point to pursue writing full time. Tell me a little bit about that journey for you. Yeah. So I left my job in tech um, where I felt like it kind of ran, it kind of ran its course. Like I felt like I learned all I wanted to learn from that industry. And I still had been writing a little bit on the side, but, work was just so intense and overwhelming that I didn't really have, I could never find the time to finish a novel. Mm. And so I thought, well, okay, let me see if I, like I'd always had an idea of going to grad school for an MFA program. And I decided to go to a writer's workshop called Breadloaf um, that summer after, I think it was the summer after I left or the summer after that. Uh, but I went to a workshop, met a bunch of other people who were trying to write novels, and met a lot of people who'd gone to MFA programs and enjoyed them so and found them helpful. So I applied to MFA programs, 
got into one at University of Arizona in Tucson and moved from San Francisco to the desert. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a real change of pace. And, you know, I remember meeting up with one of the students there when I first arrived in Tucson. And we met in a coffee shop and we're talking about writing. And I realized then that I had this internal clock from being in meetings at Facebook that I knew 30 minutes is up now. And ah. I thought, you know, maybe the, maybe we need to wrap things up. And she kept talking and an hour went by, another hour went by. And I realized it was like, oh, I'm, I, I kind of felt like I went through a portal into another world. <laughs> like this is a toy. And it, that was, that was a, like a real lesson for me that like, you know, this, I'd been part of this industry where things move really fast. You can make things in six weeks and launch them to people and going into writing, you know, and realizing how much work and time goes into writing a novel. Um, that was, you know, that was a big lesson for me. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so one, I spoke with the, one of the writers I interviewed recently when I asked about the MFA program, you know, what the advantage of it was, or, and it mm -hmm. was basically the time to write that that was what it gave her more than anything else. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think the time to write and for me also the people I met there, like it can be very, uh, you know, writing can be lonely. And so having other people around who are supporting you or who are also trying to write a book and going kind of going along on the same timeline as you are, um, that was really helpful for me in MFA program. And I was coming from a place where there weren't a lot of other, you know, everyone was working in tech. We weren't, no one was writing. So maybe it's different if you live somewhere like here in New York, but. Yeah. Yeah. So you were able to find a community. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And with the way tech is now, the community can be anywhere and you can be part of it. Yeah, and that's great. I mean, I feel <laughs> yeah. like there's so many like virtual workshops that if they would have been around 10 years ago, you know, that would have been really nice. <laughs> so when did you start working on Please Report Your Bug Here? It was about halfway through grad school. So it's, it was a two-year program, and I started working on it the summer before the second year. Um, and in grad school, a lot of the format of these fiction workshops are designed for short stories. So right. I was writing a lot of short stories and um, wanted to have my secret project on the side. <laughs> um, so I, I started writing this novel. And how long did it take you to finish? I finished a draft of it in, you know, about a year. Um, but... That was just a quick, you know, trying to write 200 pages or however long I needed it to be, just trying to get a story told, like, on paper. Right. And then after that, I took a couple more years, worked on it, gave it to friends to read. And in um, probably about two and a half years after I started writing it, two and a half or three years, I signed with an agent and worked with her on revisions. And then about six months after I signed with an agent, we sold it to an editor. And it's being published by Henry Holt, which is one of the big guys. 
Henry Holt, right? In, yeah. in print of Macmillan. Yeah, yeah. yeah so do you feel like you hit the jackpot? I mean, I feel really <laughs> lucky that anyone read oh. my manuscript. Oh. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's amazing to me because, I mean, just meeting people in the publishing industry, like my agent, you know, has so much work to do during the day and then goes home and reads unsolicited manuscripts from writers mm -hmm. like me. Um, so How did you find your agent? I cold queried a bunch of agents. Okay. And I will say with my agent, I did have a connection through a grad school professor who was able to say, hey, this person's sending in a manuscript. Um, so I did have that. But, you know, I think in the end, like I queried agents not knowing anyone connected to them. And several people wrote back to me and were interested in reading more which I found really encouraging that the people are, are, you know, like have pretty busy jobs and are yet like willing to read manuscripts from writers they don't know. Yeah. Like it felt really encouraging for the state of literature that they, there's people <laughs> out there trying to find new work. I love that. I love that. Um, are you the type of writer who, like you said, you wrote this first draft just trying to get down on paper? So I'm guessing you've heard the pantser versus plotter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So are you a pantser? Yes. I, <laughs> I would love to be a plotter. Like, I actually tried writing another novel or starting another novel and outlining the whole thing. And I think it could be a good novel, but I, I couldn't bring myself to keep working on it. You know, like I, because I knew what was going to happen. Okay. And I like the process of discovery. Okay. So with Please Report Your Bug Here, you did not know what was going to happen. So did you just start right. with this character and just see where it, it took him? Exactly. I, I did start writing like those first few pages. They're pretty much the same as I wrote them when I started the book. And based on my bike ride to work okay. from my apartment in San Francisco. <laughs> but so I, I knew the setting and the, you know, the time and place. And then once I landed on Ethan's voice, that's what pulled me through the story. Right. Right. So, but the whole sort of the um, uh, speculative aspect of it, you didn't know the, how that was going to turn out or. I didn't, but <laughs> I have this tendency, like, even when I try writing an essay, that it just turns speculative. <laughs> it just turns into fiction. So I had a feeling that would probably happen. Um, but, yeah, I didn't know exactly. I didn't know, you know, I didn't even know it would be a dating app. Um, oh, Like, wow. I had Ethan bike to work, go into a startup office, and start working, and then as I was writing, the dating app kind of popped into my head. You know? <laughs> Who knows why? Maybe I'd been reading about dating apps or something. But yeah, yeah. I, I'm guessing that you love coffee. I do love coffee. <laughs> I did go on a tea kick recently where it was off coffee for a while, uh, and then I got back on coffee, and I'm, I'm 
happy again. And, <laughs> and the reason I'm saying that is because, of course, Ethan is really into coffee mm -hmm. and um, also whiskey. And whiskey. Mm -hmm. And whiskey, yeah. Craft, crafted beverages, very yes. into that. <laughs> yes, yeah. You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Josh Riedel, author of Please Report Your Bug Here. Sometimes I forget to say that often enough. I had someone email me and said, I heard the last 15 minutes of your interview, and I don't know who you were actually talking to. <laughs> <laughs> the mystery. You know? Yes, yeah. <laughs> and I want to read his book. So. Mm. <laughs> um. Are you working on another novel now? You said you started plotting one out, but it wasn't something that you felt you could continue or wanted to continue with. So, Yeah, I am working on one now. I actually wrote um, – I like to start novels by writing by hand. Oh. And <laughs> the, the, you Luddite you. <laughs> I know. Um, uh, whenever I was um, – I think when this one, when we sent this out to editors or at some point in the process of trying to sell the book, I started writing another one and just by hand. And it was just nice to go into another fictional world and know that I had a notebook or two filled with more writing that I could get to later. And that's kind of the novel I'm working on now where I have a lot of writing <laughs> but I need to figure out what's going on in the story. Oh, okay. Okay. So that's the disadvantage of being a pantser is that maybe the story doesn't actually happen. <laughs> right. I'm hoping going through this process of writing my first novel though, like I'll, I'll have some, you know, lessons in there to apply to this new one. Yeah. But yes. I'm also tr like teaching myself how to screen write. Um, so that's been really fun. So has there been any interest in please report your bug here for as a movie or are you there, allowed there to say been talk. <laughs> there's been talks. Um, okay. <laughs> you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I could, I could It'd see. Be fun. Yeah, I could see it. I could definitely see it. And of course, often the writer does not get to write the screenplay, but it would be cool if you could yeah it depends um yeah. did you see that new show fleischman is in trouble i've heard about it i haven't seen yeah. it yet and I, i've watched the show but haven't read the book okay um, which is usually the other way around for me but uh, i think the the writer of, of the author of that book wrote the screenplay oh interesting i've <laughs> recently i've things that i've watched particularly speculative type of things I tend to want to go back and read the book and see what the differences are. So like Station 19, mm -hmm. I, I read the book. Very different. Mm -hmm. uh, right now I'm listening on Audible to Man in the High Castle. And oh, yeah. did you, you didn't watch no, that? No, I haven't read that. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's very interesting too. So I, I, always, I, I try and think about, I wonder why they changed this. Kindred, that's another one. I had read the, that's Octavia Butler. I'd read mm -hmm. it years ago, and I just watched the, um, the, mini, the mini series of it. And I'm like, why did they make that change? That is so different. <laughs> uh -huh. I know, it's so different. How it, like, mm -hmm. I, I tried as an experiment. I have a short story that I adapted into a screenplay just to see what that process is like. And mm -hmm. I really gained a lot of respect for the genre. Um, it's because I thought I could write something that would page by page go with the plot of the story. And it's just a different form. 
Okay, so you realized why it doesn't work to stick close to the story. Yeah, for this particular story, um, I think you can. You know, I, I, I've again, I haven't read the book, but I've heard Fleischman is in trouble. Is stays pretty true to the book. Um, you know, yeah. Um, Another example is Game of Thrones, which I had read oh, right. long before it became they became mm-hmm. uh, on HBO, and the first season stayed very close to the mm-hmm. book. But by the end, they were completely divergent. <laughs> was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I wonder why that is. If... Yeah, yeah. I feel like they could have stayed close. They could have stayed with the book and it would have been just as good. But I, maybe it's partly the the screenwriters, the, the producers, the directors want to put their own mark on it in some way. I can see that, you know, yeah, I mean, you yeah. want to stay true to the spirit of the story, but yeah. put your own twist on it, or maybe you're more interested in this side character than it seemed like the author was in the book. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you you said you do write short stories as well. Are you still working mm-hmm. on short stories too? I am. I actually just published on a short story in this online magazine called Joyland. And the story is called The One with the Multiverse. And it's oh. based on, um, it involves a TV show, Friends, and <laughs> the concept of the multiverse. And takes place in um, like a small town or like a medium-sized town in Missouri. I'm from Missouri originally. Oh, really? Where mm-hmm. in Missouri? Uh, west of St. Louis, this town called O'Fallon, Missouri. Okay. Okay. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm in Iowa, so mm-hmm. Southern Iowa, so not very far away, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, cool. Cool. And you also, I do notice you have um, a website, joshreidel.com, for people mm-hmm. who want more information about you. And um, the book is out, or is. It is out. It came out um, last Tuesday, January 17th. Okay. Out for over a week. And have you done any live events for it? I have. I did one the day it came out in San Francisco, and that was great because I've lived in San Francisco for a long time, and a bunch of old friends came out, and oh, um, and I just did one here in New York uh, a few nights ago. Oh, cool. And uh, let's see. I'm looking. You've got some. Yes, you've got one in Tucson, a festival coming up in Tucson. Yeah, the Tucson Book (laughs) Festival, which I'm so excited about because Tucson is just such a great literary city. I don't know if a lot of people know that, but it has so many writers live there. It's affordable. Um, There's like the Poetry Center on the University of Arizona campus is incredible. Um, And this book festival takes place in early March, and it's beautiful in Tucson. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, What was, you know, how did it feel when you actually held your book in your hand? Uh, Surreal, you know, (laughs) you you just like I spent so many years just looking at this as a document on my computer and I printed it out for myself so many times. Um, But to actually hold it and to see a cover and really, I think holding it for like, I realize how much work goes into making a book, just my agent, my editor, the publicist, marketing team, sales. It's just such a labor of love. Cover design. 
Yeah, cover design. Did you have any input on the cover design? I did. I got to yeah. make a Pinterest board. Oh, um, so very I cool. Pinterest to make kind of a mood board of images of, and we sent that to the designer, and the designer came back with four cover designs, and uh, I actually really loved that one. And there was a another one that I liked too, but then I sent the cover designs to my friends and. Everyone agreed that this should be the cover. This so. is the one. Well, Josh, congratulations on your first novel. Thank and you. look forward to many more in the future. Thank you. And uh, we always close with a quote. And so I looked up one about entrepreneurship because, you know, start the whole startup thing. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not sure when this was written, but I think it was a long time ago. The, it's from Antoine de Saint Exupéry or something like that. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> when well, I thank... start my own company, I will use that. Oh, <laughs> that's really lovely. Oh, thank you, thank you, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. And see you all next week on Writer's Voices.